Well, Sean, thank you so much for being back. Um, I told you a minute ago, just as you were coming into the office, people loved your last podcast. And people loved it because they had actual defined steps to create their goals and to do all the things that we talked about yesterday, which is so important. And so I'm just so happy to have you back. I'm thrilled that we put it together this quickly. Um, and so thank you so much for doing it again and being here. I'm really excited for, for what we're going to get into today. It's going to be fun. No, I, and I appreciate you, Evan. It's, it's good to hear that. And it kind of tells us, uh, hey, we're on the right track. We are. And, and what we're doing in, in, in helping individuals. Uh, we need framework. Yeah. Keeps us organized, keeps us accountable. Mm. Um, it keeps pushing us in the right direction. And, and when we get off track, we know where to go. Framework's hard to find. Yeah, well, I think it's, it's very, everybody speaks in very just general terms about what they want and the, you know, go set goals, go do this. But there's not a lot of actual framework being told out there for free, at least, or just in general, really. You know, that's a good point. You know, what I have found in all my years of, of researching and, and being a coach and a teacher and a trainer is that there's a lot of books that are written, but the books are um, they're written on what you should do and not how you should do it, mm -hmm. which I get. Um, it's either they don't want to share the information or they haven't defined how you do it. And that's where, where I really kind of got frustrated, you know, in my career is not having the how-tos. Mm -hmm. And you've got to dig in deep. You know, you've got to do a lot of research and you've got to find the, the answers to that. Because um, you're not going to get it in social media. You're not going to get it on the web. You're, you have to dig you have to dig hard to find it and um, I'm honored to be able to have these conversations with you to provide some framework for our listeners it's you know 30 years of of being this teacher and trainer and coach and having you know painful discoveries and lugging the pain along with you along the way and the struggles that we have, um, it's organic, it's real. Uh, yeah. it's, it's how we get better is, is through our struggles, mm -hmm. you know, which is cool. So I couldn't agree more. Well, well, you guys do such a phenomenal job of setting people up for success. We talked about it the last time. I mean, the performance of these students that you're teaching right. is insane. It's unbelievable. It, it really is. And it's the consistency. I remember saying that to you last yeah. time. It's the performance, but it's the fact that they can do it over and over and over and over again that makes it so impressive. Yeah, and I think that you, you hit on a, um, a hot point right there is that they can, they can replicate it and duplicate it, right? So in, in order to be consistent at something, you have to be able to replicate and duplicate something, right? Mm-hmm. In order to replicate and duplicate something, you need to have systems in place. You need to have programs. You've got to have framework. So 
in order to master something, you've got to have steps to follow, like martial arts, for example. Yeah. I mean, I don't know of anything that is more defined, measured, and timed, right? That you go through all these layers in becoming a black belt. Mm-hmm. But you have to follow them. Yeah. And you have to be able to, you know, somewhat resemble some mastery of it. But the only way that you can do that, you've got to have systems in place. Mm-hmm. And it keeps you on track. So uh, I'm a big believer and a big uh, proponent of that stuff. You I mean, you look at the most successful people in the world. I was watching uh, the other night on HBO um, the uh, chairman of Brookshire Hathaway, mm-hmm. Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it's a documentary, and it's remarkable. Okay. And I highly recommend it. Where do, where do people find this? It's on HBO. Okay. You can, you, you, get, uh, you can just go to any of the uh, web. You can get it. Okay. And it's, you pay for, it's like pay-per-view, and it's, okay. it's, it's cheap. It's like three bucks or something okay. like that. But it kind of goes into the way he was wired, all right? Um, the way that he performs tasks, the way that he makes decisions, and the way that he built his life of where it is today, uh, a lot of framework. Yeah. And it's really cool. I need to watch that. Yeah. I think I would enjoy that. Yeah, you know, you, mm-hmm. you, you break down and you look at these most successful people in the world, um, even the coaches, right? Because I'm on the coaching space, but also I look at business. Because, you know, the positive charge and the negative charge of what I do is that, yeah, I do coach people, but it is a business. Yeah. And I do have to be mindful of that. And uh, anything that you end up loving that you do that was not necessarily a hobby, but maybe it was a hobby that now it's something that's turned into a business. Well, you have to learn how to manage that piece. Yeah. Uh, like we were talking about, I was horrible at math when I, one time mm-hmm. and I became pretty good at it. Then I'd learned accounting and finance and right. You had a framework for it after that. A framework for it. Right. Yeah. I love that. And, uh, but that leads us into kind of where we're going today. Yeah. So I, you know, we, uh, one of the things that you really are, are so passionate about is profiling. And just before we began, you were saying that for 10 years, you were learning really this art of profiling and you were really good at it before. And so I remember the first time that I met you, um, I came onto the range at Cowboys in Dallas and uh, I, I got onto the range and I, I was nervous to meet you because you remember <laughs> uh, I got introduced to you through the Jobs. Yes. And so I, I get onto the range and I'm thinking, okay, I gotta, I gotta really put on my A game here. I gotta impress this guy because I show off. Yeah, I want to get into right. this thing, so I gotta master this. And I got on the range and shank. The guy had a sandwich, shanked it, just way off to the right. Step up again. You're standing right behind me. Step up again, shank again. Step up again, shanked it a third time. And now I'm just like unraveling. I'm freaking out. I'm thinking, this is it. It's over. And you just very calmly stepped up and you said, why do you think you're doing that? And I said, I don't know. You said, do you ever shank it normally? I said, well, every once in a while, but not usually. And so you started asking me all of these things like, 
pulling it out of me. Why, why did I think that I was doing this? You never told me what the problem was. You just were asking me, well, what do you normally do? How do you usually do it? And then you took a tee and you put it down right in front of the ball. You said, just keep your club behind that tee. Don't hit the tee. And I said, okay, perfect shot, perfect shot, perfect shot. And I remember that's the first time I ever met you. And then I was in your program for, I don't remember how long. Is a year, two years, maybe? Yeah, two years, a little two over years. two years. And uh, that was just so great. And I think it's a good testament to profiling because I was completely non-threatened by you when you did that. I didn't feel embarrassed when you came up and, and were teaching me. Right. Uh, but you were a master profiler. And I know that you've spent a lot of time on it now, though, becoming the true master. And so I really want to hear about that. I want to get into it. Well, I appreciate that. I don't know if I'm a, a, a master profiler, but I think that, you know, we, we all read people. Right. And we have the ability to do that. And some are better than others. And yeah. so circling back to you with you shanking the ball and hitting it dead right. It was so so, so what I did, what I did is not, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. You were so consumed with outcome. Mm-hmm. You were so consumed at where the ball was going to go that you completely abandoned executing yeah and so all i did was i put a t down there where the where the club needs to come into the ball and all i wanted to do is just focus on where that t is to where the club could come in so now you completely removed your conscious thoughts on outcome Mm -hmm. now it's like okay i got to get the club right here yeah that's all we did we just shifted your thoughts Shifted your focus, and now the focus became, okay, this is where the club's got to make impact, change outcome. Because here's something interesting, and we'll talk about this profiling piece here in just a second, but I think it's important to understand is that the second that your conscious mind shifts away from executing, the second that it focuses on outcome, the second your performance drops Immediately. Yeah. Doesn't matter what the situation is. Because you lose your concentration on your focus of your executing and your steps and you shift over here, performance starts dropping. It's no different than cooking or baking. The second that you move away from what you're trying to do or the time that it's in the oven or whatever it is, it can be a disaster. So how, but how do you... I know we'll get into this, but how, so how, do, how does somebody stay focused on the execution and not the outcome? It's a great question. I mean, I'm sure we could talk for hours about just that. Well, but, I'll, we'll, we'll summarize it just a little bit. We'll get into the profiling piece, and maybe we can circle back to it at the end. Okay, let's do that. Okay. Let's do um, that. First and foremost, your steps of performing have to be defined. Okay. So I like, I mean, I think the easiest way to look at it is like a recipe. Mm -hmm. Okay. Those are your steps. Those are your steps of performing to bake this cake. Yeah. And you have to follow those steps. So your focus is on these steps. One part this, one part that, teaspoon here, tablespoon here, half a cup here, three quarters cup here. Mm Mm-hmm. So every step is defined. So the reason people become master chefs and 
master bakers or what have you, is because they've mastered the steps of performing. And it doesn't matter what the task is. You have to be willing, okay, I've got to break down what my steps are. And that's what I do with athletes. I break down their steps of performing for every athlete that I work with. doesn't matter what genre it is, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, volleyball, lacrosse, swimming, diving, motocross. What are your steps of performing? And you have to define those. And are those individual per person? Um, Depending on the sport, okay. you know, like in golf, we use, I have six steps of performing in golf, and it's the same for every Everybody. single shot. Every shot that you hit, you have these six steps that you follow for every single shot. So what's it do? It occupies your conscious mind, so the environment cannot dictate how you're thinking. Mm-hmm. So Football's good. the same way. You know, when you're a quarterback and you're going up to the line of scrimmage, you have these steps that you're following, and right. that's all you're focusing on are these steps. And all you're doing is executing those steps. Motocross is the same way when you get in, you get into the uh, starting gate, right? These steps every single time. And then when you're on the track, it's executing. So, uh, I mean, if you really want to, you really want to take your, you know, what it is that you do to the next level, you define your steps of performing. I mean, it's like in sales, right? Yeah. You have these steps that you follow for every call that you do. Mm-hmm. And then you follow those steps and then you reinforce at the end what solutions you need to put in place, the follow-up, all of that. Okay, next call. Follow the steps. Again, it's just framework, yeah. but it's a piece of the performance that separate the ultra performers from everybody else. It's the piece that separates them. Why? Because it occupies their conscious mind and they can't get involved with the environmental imprints, the imagined imprints, um, and the actual imprints. Yeah. You know, um, and all this circles back to being able to control your thoughts in a very stressful situation, just like you did when you came and you were auditioning Mm-hmm. For <laughs> it was an audition. It was. It was terrifying. <laughs> all I did was narrow, narrow your focus. Right. That's all I did. Yeah. And I never thought of So when you just said it, like this is when I actually just, this moment is when I just figured out really what you were doing. I mean, I knew that you were, like I, I knew what was happening then and I've always known, but like what you just said of actually taking my focus away from the outcome yeah. into just the, the execution, that's huge. That's so true. I mean, and, and that that's not only sports. Like, that's business. That's relationship. That's a million different areas of life. Yeah. The, the, the second you start trying to measure outcome that hasn't happened, your focus has to shift towards that, and it can be a train wreck. And people wonder why, you know, why they're not getting the, the results that they want to get because they're so focused on outcome. They haven't defined the steps that they have to follow to become someone that they're not so that they can attain the project that they put in place. Right. That's great. Uh, I think it's... I think it's the secret water, man. Mm -hmm. 
I really do. And you, you look at all these, the, the most successful people in the world, um, all walks of life. Uh, I mean, the, the, like early, early in my career, I mean, when I was a pup, you know, there was a couple books that I read that were, they're critical and I still have them. Mm. Um, um, how to win friends and influence people. Yep. I've worn the cover off of that thing. Yeah. Such a good book. Um, you know, from a relationship and then from a finance standpoint, the, um, I'm drawing a blank on it right now. Give me a second and I'll remember it. <laughs> and, it was, and it was written like in like 1926. Think and Grow Rich? No. Oh. Um, the Richest Man in Babylon. Great book. Ogmandino. Richest Man in Babylon. Great book. I've worn the cover off that thing. Yeah. And I still live by it today. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, so let's talk about how to read people right the first time. Okay. Right? Profiling gets a, it gets a bad rap. And I think the spin on it is, is it's not really not a spin. It's kind of really what it, what it really is, is we all read people. Some of us have the ability to read people better than others, especially people that are in sales, right? Right. Because they're around people a lot. And um, I was blessed with the ability to read people pretty well. And for whatever reason, I don't know why. And... But what was interesting is, is that every once in a while, um, an athlete, or even when I was, even when I was in business, right? I was in the resort business and the golf business for many years, and I was hiring people, right? Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, you got a bad apple, and it happens, and you don't know why, mm-hmm. and it's like, dang it. How did that person fool me? Or, man, that wasn't the read that I had gotten from that person because their talk was not matching their walk. Right. It was different. Mm-hmm. I was like, man, I hope I don't make that mistake again. But how do I not make that mistake again? Because people can fool you with their talk. Um, especially in this day and age because there's so much information. And people can fill you full of information. But does their walk match the way they talk? So uh, some 10 years ago, I was working with my coaches, right? Really probably longer than that probably 15 years ago, working with the coaches, I would interview, just like I did with you when you came into my academy, Mm -hmm. I would interview the athlete, and then I would interview the parents and have conversations with them. And there were specific questions that I asked and that I could get a read on, right? And I always went with my gut. It's the only thing I had. Mm. I didn't have a system. I didn't have checkpoints in place. And I was pretty good at it. And every once in a while, an athlete would get in and it's like, man, this doesn't quite match all our other athletes. Mm. 
So it can, so it can be a problem, right? Especially in an organization. Yeah. Okay. And my coaches say, what do you think about this? Like, I got a pretty good feeling about this. It's in my gut. I got a good feeling. And it would turn, it would be a positive outcome. And then I would say, you know, uh, I'm, ju- I'm just not sure on this one. Mm. Well, what do you mean you're not sure on it? Well, I just kind of have a gut. But I couldn't explain to them. You didn't know why. It was just I didn't know a why. And, and so, and I'm trying to explain to the other coaches, you know, about, but I, did, I couldn't explain to them because I didn't have any framework. Yeah. Right. So there was a, there was a gentleman that I met by the name of Dan Corum, K O R E M. Okay. okay? Uh, he's become a longtime pal of mine and a big mentor of mine. And Dan would come out and he would watch me train in the academy from afar. And he was a big time golfer. Okay. And, and I found it to be kind of interesting because he watched us train for a long time before he ever introduced himself or said anything. He would just watch and observe while he was hitting balls. One day he came over and he introduced himself. He, and he asked me a few questions that I'd never been asked before. Mm. And I didn't have any answers for him. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> but they were good. They were positive questions, Right. right? In the aspect of, do you know why you do the things that you do? You specifically or your school? Yeah, me. You specifically, okay. Do you know why you stand a particular way when you're communicating with someone? Do you know why your hands do what they do when you're communicating with someone? Do you know why you stand? Do you know why your tone is in a particular way when you communicate with someone? I'm like, I haven't got a freaking clue. But I do it because I sense what the other person is telling me. Mm-hmm. Okay? He said, well, he goes, you're pretty good at it. I'm like, really? He goes, yes, because I see how these kids respond to you. And all of them respond to you. Yeah. He goes, would you like to know why you do this? Would you like to know how to read and treat your athletes right the first time that you meet them? And how about being able to read and treat their parents right the second that you meet them? I was like, oh my God, that would be a game changer. He said, what if you could do this with anyone that you met? Mm. I was like... Dude, who are you? Yeah. Right? Why did you just walk over here and tell me that? And so I was so intrigued with it. Well, lo and behold, some, you know, 10 plus years later, right? I spent all these years with uh, with Dan. And the interesting piece about Dan, and and I want you to write his name down, okay? And the first book that he wrote was called The Art of Profiling. Okay, I recommend the second edition, okay, of that. But then the second book that he came out with, which is incredible, okay, it's called Snapshot. Okay. Being able to read and treat people right the first time. You get a snapshot of them. 
right? snapshots. Everyone needs to go buy snapshot. Yeah, yeah, go buy snapshot. Okay, because it's awesome. Okay. So what did I learn? Okay. I learned that people communicate in two ways. Okay. These are the finest, thinnest wires in the way that people are wired. All right? Okay. Now, being an old country boy from Oklahoma, you know, I'll be the first to tell you, I would kind of tilt every once in a while to a side where I would stereotype people. I think that we all have done that, right? And But being a teacher and an educator, um, I did less of it, but I would still sometimes stereotype people, right? We all do it. What I learned from Dan completely eliminated that. So it allowed me to read and treat people right the first time. So we have four wires. Okay. The way that we are wired. Okay. The first is when we communicate, do we control or do we express our emotions? We tilt one way or the other. That doesn't mean it's right or wrong, it's good or bad. It's just who we are. Okay. Okay. And so by controlled or expressed, does this mean like a more enthusiastic person versus one that's a little bit more chaste or? Yeah, I think it's, you know, during, regardless of the situation, they're going to be a little more controlled. Okay. Or regardless to the situation, they're going to be a little bit more express. Mm -hmm. So for example, my wife is express. All right. I'm a little more controlled. Now, I can express when I need to, but I tilt more towards the controlled side. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. All right? So the next is, so that's the first wire in communication. So if you can determine that, it's very helpful. Okay. All right? Because if I meet someone that's very controlled, I wouldn't want to communicate with them at high express. Yeah. It's not gonna, they're never going to hear it. It's, it's, not, it's not the way that they're wired. Okay? The next wire is people are either assertive or non-assertive when they communicate. Okay? So, for example, I'm being very assertive right now. And I'm not being that assertive right now. Mm-hmm. Now, you can be controlled in how you express, but you can also be very assertive. Mm -hmm. And you folks know people like that. It could be one of your coworkers. It could be your boss. It could be a coach that you had. If you relate it to coaching, you may have a coach that was very assertive, but very controlled. And when he communicated with you, he'd pull you really close and he might whisper directly in your ears like, young man, you better figure this out or we're going to Get our rear end handed to us today. Mm-hmm. That would be very assertive. Yeah, but, but controlled. But controlled. I've seen you do this, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the two wires, right, in the way that we communicate, right? And if we learn those from the outset, then it makes communication so much easier mm-hmm. with anyone that you meet, okay? Now, the next two are what we call the performance wires, 
All right. Performance wires is how you perform tasks and make decisions. Those are your walk wires, right? So your walk wires, that really tells you who you are. Okay. Okay. So how someone performs tasks and makes decisions, right? So the, one that, the way they perform tasks, are they conventional? Or are they unconventional in the way that they perform tasks? Okay? Now, I want you to hang on to that thought because I'm going to circle back to that and I'm going to give you a little more insight on this conventional and unconventional piece. The next is the way that they make decisions. Are they cautious decision makers? Or are they confident decision makers? Mm. So the, the whole reason why Dan Coram built this system is that the YPO, the Young Presidents Organization, came to him years ago. Now, a little back, background on Dan is Dan is a former sleight-of-hand magician. Oh, interesting. And one of the best in the world. He's written many books on magic, okay, and performed at the Magic Factory in L.A. and had like a, a, a record consecutive standing ovations for particular acts that he had, okay? And he studied under some of the best um, down in New Orleans, mm-hmm. okay? He's also one of the best, one of the top investigative journalists wow. in the world. Okay. okay, interesting, man. So when you when you look at this, right, so... He's in the business. So what is magic? Magic is the art of deception, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Well, when you're an investigative journalist, you're investigating people that are, going, that are trying to do what? Put deception in place. Mm-hmm. Trying to deceive you. Yeah. He was brilliant at it. And... So he had to really learn how to read these people. And so he built this whole system, the art of profiling, from the grassroots of all of his work in magic, but his investigative piece into journalism. Then he went abroad to different countries and he studied cults, especially how they formed these cults and um, why these cults were put together and it's really fascinating. I'm, I'm not doing, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not doing him justice because... Well, he sounds like a fascinating guy. Oh, we, need to, we need to have him on. Oh, he's... I'd love to talk to him. And he's an guy. amazing man. Uh, amazing man. So with these four wires, okay, how someone communicates, control or express, assertive or non-assertive, mm-hmm. how they how they communicate, how they perform tasks and make decisions. In the decision-making, are they cautious or confident? Okay. On the piece of how they perform tasks, conventional or unconventional. And I want you to think about this for a second. In the 1960s, we were a very agrarian culture, farming and agriculture, Right. 80% of our population was conventional. Only 20% of our population 
was unconventional. 20%. With the infusion of technology in the 90s, okay, our world changed. Now it's flipped. Over 85% of the population is unconventional now. And the other small percentage of 15% is conventional. Mm. So there's a big shift. Yeah. Right? So significant. And that's with change of technology. and Technology did it. Yeah. Right? So if you look at this, if you walked into a, a classroom today, mm -hmm. 85 to 90%, it's unconventional. Yeah. Compared to where it was in the <clears throat> 60s. I mean, really, really unbelievable. So let's talk about the traits that the unconventional have. Okay. I think it's easy to understand the positive traits. So this may resonate with you, okay? And so if you look at the unconventional, they're kind of non-conforming. Okay. They're impulsive. Mm -hmm. They dislike repetitive action. They're guarded. They're spontaneous. They need freedom. They're idea-driven. They avoid risk. That also could be because they're a little cautious too. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, they avoid, let, me, let me rephrase that. They, they avoid risk of ownership of problems. Okay. That's probably a better way of saying it. Okay? They're more of a follower than they are a leader. But these are just the positive traits, right? They operate without structure. They're motivated by change. They're spontaneous. Here's something interesting. They rely upon creativity versus experience to solve problems. They rely upon creativity versus experience to solve problems. Mm. They're unconventional, right? So it's important to know that when you're working with someone that's unconventional. Mm -hmm. Okay? Now let's talk about the traits of the conventional, right? If you look at me, if you looked at me, if you looked at the way I dressed, the way I do my hair, kind of the way that I operate, I look pretty conventional. Yeah. <laughs> but if you spend any time with me... It's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. So people yeah. would, could stereotype, oh, yeah, he's just a good old country boy. Uh, he's old school. Right. And, um, you know, but... I probably tilt the other way, mm -hmm. right? So let's talk about the conventional piece, okay? The, the positive traits of the conventional. They're obedient. They're compliant. They're analytical. Uh, they, like per, they like repetitive actions. Mm. So let's talk about this in regards to golf. Right. Okay. When you're describing this person, this just I, I don't relate to this at all. Which is funny. Like, it's just repetitive actions, and it just sounds terrible. Right, it does. Well, <laughs> before I talk about golf, so they're, they're guarded, okay? Um, 
they're rule oriented. We know people like that. Oh yeah. All right. Um, doesn't require a challenge. Um, they're fo- they're followers. Um, they avoid risk. They take ownership of problems. They're resistant to change. They're predictable. Mm. Um, they prefer challenge with predictable outcome. They rely upon experience versus creativity to solve problems, which is the opposite of the unconventional. The unconventional. Yeah. And so you have these two people <clears throat> as a business owner, as a coach, as a leader. How do you identify? How do you quickly identify which which uh, which bucket a person falls into? Is there a method that you have to to say? Oh, I know this is a conventional person. This is an unconventional person. There is, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tilt you to getting snapshot. Okay. Okay. Um, because I'm not I w- I won't do it justice. Mm-hmm. And I, there's certain questions that you have to ask. Okay. And um, Dan does an incredible job at explaining that piece. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to dig for me just a little bit. I'm yep. giving you some good framework Hey, here. we can do that. Yeah. Um, because discovery is the best part of learning. Yeah. I'll give you the framework. I'll tell you how to get there. Mm-hmm. But I need for you to do a little discovery on your end. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? And... You know what's interesting is every coach that I've ever had told me the same thing. Really? Yeah. They're like, I'll give you some framework. I'll give you some steps. But this is what you need to do so that you, you can discover it. Because it's not going to mean anything if I just give you the answer. Yeah. Because discovery is the best part of learning. Right. Because that, and it also grows your self-image because I did it. Right. Now I take what I've learned and I applied it, and now I had what you call a transformational experience. You took it and then you experienced it. Mm-hmm. That's true transformation. Yeah. It's not a transaction. Right. So if I give you all the steps and I give you all the how-tos, that's transactional. Mm-hmm. There's no transformation to it. Right. And are most of the, so say, to, uh, just any athlete in your program, are yeah. most of these people unconventional? Do they fall into the unconventional bucket? Well, I think you have a, um, I think you have them across the board. I think there's, there's a few conventionals. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at golf, right? Okay, we'll talk golf, we'll talk football, we'll talk baseball, and um, we talk motocross, right? And look at the different um, profiles that there are in each sport. So golf is the most, one of the most conventional sports ever created on the face of the planet, right? right? And here I am pretty unconventional, but I play a conventional sport. Yeah. Because um, I'm kind of both. I'm unconventional in certain ways, and I'm conventional in some other ways, but I really tilt towards the unconventional side. So what does that mean for a conventional sport? Um, if you don't like variability, you don't need to play golf. Mm-hmm. Such a good point. Okay, um, if you don't if you don't like to struggle, you need to run from golf. Yeah. If you don't like misery, mm-hmm. don't even think about it. It's hard as hell. Because <laughs> golf, it is hard as hell. Thank you. And 
You know, what's interesting is, is I, I, golf is the epitome of struggle and the pinnacle of misery. That's what golf is. So how do you take a very conventional sport or even a conventional business, yeah. okay, and allow the unconventional to come in and innovate between the lines of conventional and unconventional and innovate between the lines and have success? Mm. I think that's a very important question to ask. I agree. I'm already thinking of people that I know that would benefit from hearing the answer to this. So forget what it is. But if it's a conventional business, okay? So golf, I was, I was always told, I mean, this is back in the early 2000s. I was told that, Humphreys, you can't take a conventional sport that's always been one-on-one lessons, okay, and turn it into a team environment and train them in a team environment like football does, like basketball does, like volleyball does, lacrosse. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, if I don't do this, I'm going to go broke. <laughs> Why? Because the world shifted. Yeah. We know that 85% of the population is unconventional and the very small percentage, it's 85% unconventional and 15% unconventional. All these kids, they're... They're innovative. Yeah. They've got the unconventional traits. So I've got to create an environment that allows them to innovate between the lines, not to where the lines are so tight that they can't innovate, but also not so wide that there's not any structure. Right. And that's how I built my academy. I just... and Yeah, and students... So back when I was in it, like, every student loved it. Like there was never a student that was just dragging on the way in. How did, how did you do that? Well, I, I allowed them to be them, but there was framework that we had to operate in. Yeah. So I gave them the framework and, and gave them the steps and required mm. them to learn the steps, but they could be them. Right. I wasn't changing their identity. I wasn't changing the way that they communicated or performed tasks or made decisions. Actually, I did influence the way that they made decisions. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you something really cool here in a second. Okay, is that so? I would communicate to them the way that they communicated, mm-hmm. assertive, non-assertive. Yep. So they could process it, right? Control or express the way they performed tasks, whether conventional or unconventional. Because we had some conventional kids in there. Yeah. And we had some unconventional kids. Yeah. And then, so here's something really cool. So you remember me telling you about Lanny Basham, the guy? Of course. Right? Okay. And the self-image piece. Right. Okay. There is, a, there is a huge correlation, okay, that I discovered, right, okay, through my discovery. So when we're talking about people that are very cautious decision makers, okay, there's a huge correlation with them being a cautious decision maker, maker and where their self-image is. Because their self-image makes you act like you. It's your area of comfort that you operate in. Mm. It's the sum of your habits and your attitudes. 
And if you are a cautious decision maker, this is what the data showed, okay, is that these particular, this particular group has a tendency had to have a smaller self-image than the ones that are confident decision makers. Mm. That's 19 years of study. Wow. And we solved the riddle. And I'm okay. using my good friend Dan Coram's, you know, he coins it, solving the riddle. We did. We solved the riddle on how to grow the self-image and get people to be more confident decision makers separate from their natural ability mm-hmm. or their area of competency or their area of expertise and grow their self-image at the same time. Now, all of a sudden, they become superstars on the field and superstars off the field. Mm. And believe it or not, the work, the majority of the work that they did was off the field in changing that, not on the field. Wow. And when you say off the field, do you mean they were working on still golf-related tasks or just in their own life? In their own life. In their own life. Do you remember when last time you were here when we talked about what the night that you pulled all the parents in? Yes. You had like 300 people in right. that room. And I remember I told you people loved it so much because I think they all left and they, they thought this isn't just success for my kid in golf. This right. is success for my kid in life. And I mean, what you just said proves that. You know, it, it's interesting is that Our self-image controls our performance. Controls it 100%. It controls also the way you perform tasks and make decisions. Mm -hmm. And if you start growing that self-image in other areas of your life, it's going to move the needle on you becoming a more confident decision maker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we're in a world right now where it's very cautious mm-hmm. and cautious, fearful. And it's conforming. Because the, because the environmental imprints have a negative charge. Yeah. There's not a positive charge. Yeah. And it's not going to affect me. And it's not going to affect the people that I coach, the people I engage with, because we think in a different way. Yeah. Oh, I know it. What was some of the feedback from students or athletes or parents of the effects that the things you were teaching was having outside? Like, what were the things that these kids were doing differently when, once they were in your program? Yeah. Well, even, even you know, um, let's bring it to present day, okay? Because we have, we have the largest remote coaching platform in the world right now. Wow. Wow. Okay? That's unbelievable. That's right? crazy. Because now, and, and I'm, I'm not saying from an education standpoint, but from a coaching platform, mm-hmm. okay, in sports, all right? 
it took me 19 years to basically build this thing. It took me 10 years to learn it, 10 years to learn the profiling piece, 10 years to learn the Olympic training piece, and then 17, really 19 total years of building this system in this curriculum, mm -hmm. right? So I was kind of the mad scientist. Yeah. Okay. Today, we coach athletes all around the world that we never see in person. We'll never see in person. That's highly unconventional. Yeah. Most would say you can't do that. Most of them say you can't. And I love that word. Sure. I love it when most people say I can't do it. Mm -hmm. But I've been working on it for 19 years. Yeah. And I, because you look where YouTube's gone to, self-learning has never been at an all-time high. And especially with the COVID right now that we're dealing with, 70% of the population is still at home. Yep. 70% of the population is still at home. Mm -hmm. They're not in schools. So what are they doing in their sports? Yeah. They've got to have a remote mm -hmm. coaching platform that helps them. We're in motocross. We're coaching top motocross riders in the world. Some of these guys I never see in person. We're doing football. We're doing baseball. We're doing basketball. We got a lot in golf. Yeah. And you never see a lot and, of And I, I never see them in person. Wow. And we're changing the way that they perform tasks, make decisions. We're growing their self-image. Yeah. So the response, I was just on the phone yesterday with, uh, with a parent. And, you know, I, I do calls with, I do, they have a curriculum. We have a platform that delivers the curriculum. We drip the curriculum in. Everything has training tutorials. We've got workbooks. We've got framework. Wow. I mean, it's full-blown. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot built. of stuff, right? Yeah. Okay. And they upload all their content every single day. Their homework, they upload. So I get to see it. We get to see it as coaches. So okay. we see it where they're in. I mean, I did a call last night okay. with a parent and his young son in New Zealand. Wow. Okay. So it was 9 o'clock here in Dallas at night on a Monday, and it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon in New Zealand. And he's been in the program for about six months now. And I'll, I'll, I'll probably never see him in person. Yeah. But we're changing their performance. Mm -hmm. So the response is, is that you've helped us on and off the field on a regular basis. Honestly, at the end of the day, Evan, I'm here to build life champions. Mm, what a great word. Life champions. I love that. And you get them to make confident decisions separate from their natural ability or their area of competency or their area of expertise. And get them to make these confident decisions all separate from that. That's how you build life champions, man. Yeah. And you grow their self-image at the same time so it becomes like them to do something that they've never done before. So you have to learn how to train them in doing something that they've never done before. Right. Yeah. I mean... Well, I can, I can speak from experience too. Right. I mean, I told you the last time. Every, everything that you taught me back then is the framework of how I make decisions now. Yeah. Well, you and me both. Yeah. 
<laughs> both both back ten years ago. Um, so real quick, I I, I want to um, I have a question for you. So yeah. on the profiling, yeah. Take me as an example. Um, I think people see would see a lot of value in this. Take me as an example. And when you approach me, maybe it was back when you first met me, or maybe it's even now. What are the things that are going through your head when you meet me um, that you're processing of how to respond to me, how to approach me, how to ask me questions? Um, you know, how do you figure out that I'm an unconventional guy? How do you figure out how you're going to stand next to me and those kinds of things? Like what, what's, your, what's your take on Evan and then how would you respond um, with this framework? Well, where you are today is a little bit different than where you were yes. then, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So where you are today, uh, you are a lot more express than you were then. Mm-hmm. You're more assertive now than you were then. Mm-hmm. I was a quiet okay. kid. Well, you weren't quiet. You were just controlled. Yeah. Okay. You're a more confident decision maker now when you were then. Okay. And you're unconventional. You're not extreme unconventional. You know, you're not a 10. Mm-hmm. You're probably about a two or three. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, here's, here's something that's really important. When you look at the conventional and unconventional... If, if I'm a 10, zero being right in the middle, okay? If I'm a 10 conventional, it's going to be very hard for me to understand the unconventional side. Mm-hmm. Fair to say? Yeah. Okay? If I'm a 10 unconventional, it's going to be hard for me to understand the conventional. But if you're kind of like a chameleon, we're going to tilt towards one side. You tilt towards the unconventional side. But you understand the conventional piece. Mm-hmm. Now, your father's conventional. Mm. And it's one of the reasons you relate with him, because you're not a 10 on the unconventional piece. Yeah. But he's not real conventional. Right. He's yeah. kind, he's, so, yeah. he's why, why do you say that? I'm curious. Like, well, like his, 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 his background, his yeah. business that he's in, yeah. is pretty conventional. Mm-hmm. And... But he understands the unconventional side. But you look where his business had and the company that he worked for yeah. is started to become a lot more unconventional. Mm-hmm. Why? Hence, because we had the change in our culture yeah. from the 1960s to the infusion of, you know, the technology in the 90s. Our world's changed, man. Yeah. We've got we've to be in the now of the unconventional. Mm-hmm. So you have evolved. But what you, where you have evolved at is that now you have the ability to get on both sides of a coin. Mm-hmm. And you read people exceptionally well. Well, thank you. But you do. And you appreciate people for who they are, not what they do. And, you know, you're good. So for me, when I, when I read someone, not only do I have to understand the communication piece, but also there's particular techniques on the communication piece. So if someone's very controlled, okay, I'm probably going to lower my voice 
and kind of just control it. Say, okay, do you understand what we're talking about here? This is kind of the framework that we need to do. Mm. And it draws them in. Yeah. More, it's softer. It's more inviting. And, but how do you decide that that person's conventional? How do well, you know there's that? a series of questions, you know. I mean, I can just, I can ask them um, particular questions that are, it's going to determine because they'll start expressing. Right. I'll ask them personal questions. Mm-hmm. That really gets to them. And, but if they don't change the course, like, well, yeah, you know, I did this and this and this, and this is what happened. And, and, uh, but if then they go, oh, you're not going to believe this, man. This happened. And oh my God, this, it's crazy what happened. Well, that would be express. You know, they're unconventional. I know, I, well, I know that they're, they're, they're expressive. They're express. Okay. And then are people are assertive or non assertive, right? You were very non assertive. Mm hmm. But now you've become a little bit more assertive mm-hmm. in where you're at, which is really cool to see. Yeah. So if I'm going to communicate with you, I can be a little bit more assertive. Mm-hmm. But if you were non-assertive, I'm probably not going to be that assertive with you. I'm going to say, hey, Evan, you know, you need to pull your head out of your shorts because this is what we really need to focus on here. Do you understand where I'm coming from? Yeah. And you go, yeah, coach, I got it. I think I understand mm-hmm. what you're talking about. And so two things. If, if uh, For those of you out there that are listening to this on podcast, go watch this on video on the YouTube or on, on our YouTube channel because so you can actually watch the body language that Sean just changed. The second thing is <clears throat> back when we were training together, I remember you would approach me in that non-conventional or non-assertive way. Right. Because I didn't have that. I, I, I wasn't there yet. Mm-hmm. But I would see you light some kids up because they could they were assertive. They could right. handle that. Or they were higher express. Right. I remember one kid in particular that yeah. you guys would go back and forth. It was yeah. really funny. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get into, you know, the decision making. Right. So when you get into the decision making, you're, you're, you're either a cautious decision maker. You can be extremely cautious. Or you can be a little cautious. Or you can be confident. Or you can be... Extremely confident, all right? So if I have someone, most, most of the athletes, okay, I'm not going to say most, all right? Some of the athletes, all right? Because I'm not going to categorize, I'm not going right. to pigeonhole them, all right? <laughs> some of the athletes and some of the business people that I coach are cautious decision makers, Okay? Here's something to understand, and here's a rule of thumb, okay? If you're dealing with someone that's very cautious in their decision-making, don't give them a lot of options. Give them one or two. You just solved the problem for me. Just give them one or two. Mm -hmm. Now, if someone's a confident decision-maker, you can give them a lot of options. Mm -hmm. Okay? I've got a friend... Great <clears throat> that runs a jewelry store, okay, a very high end jewelry store. He was a student of mine, and and I learned this tricks of the trades from Dan Corum, right? So we're having a conversation. I said, "Tell me about the profile of the people that come in your door." Mm. He says, "Well, Sean, he goes, you know, we have all walks of life." He said, "But you know, we run a high end jewelry store, so." 
you know, the people that come through the door are pretty well-to-do, okay? And, but I said, but their profiles are different. Not based on how much money they have, their profiles can be different. He goes, you know what, that's a good point. So I, I said, do you ever have someone that comes in that says, hey, I'm, I'm looking to buy um, a bracelet for my wife. Could you show me what options you have? Buy a tennis bracelet for my wife. He goes, yeah. He goes, I get that frequently. I said, so what do you do? He goes, well, I usually pull out, you know, all the options that I have. Mm. I said, do... I said, so what would be the conversion rate, okay, when you pull out all of those options and you show them? Do some of the people go, oh, my gosh, these are incredible. I mean, I like this one and, and I like this one. Can I look at those two? He goes, yeah, I get those. I said, now do you get some that go and go, Oh my God, I, I, I don't even know what to look at here. What, you got this one and this one and this one. Oh my gosh, I like this one. Oh, this was pretty good. Oh my God, I, I can't make a decision here. Mm -hmm. I'll think about it. I think about it and they go out the door. And yeah. they got nothing to go think about because there's too many options. Yeah. He's yeah. like, oh my gosh. He goes, yes, I do get that. I said, what if you could read them right the first time when they came in the door and you learn to go through their profile, and you could determine whether they were confident or cautious. And if they were a confidence decision maker, you could lay all of them out in front of them, and they could look at it and go, look, I like this one, this one, this one, pull the other ones away, I'm going to look at this and evaluate it and make this decision here. What if you could do that? He thought, oh my God, that'd be incredible. Yeah. I said, what if you knew that they were a cautious decision maker, and you asked a few more questions about what their wife liked. And you said, you know what? I've got a couple bracelets right here that would be ideal for your wife. And you pull those two out for the cautious decision maker. So we, over the lessons, we talked about profiling and kind of gave him the, what do you call it? The, uh, the short version, okay? He got snapshot. He read the book, so we were able to have some conversations around it. And so he goes, I'm going to start putting this in play. So he did. I said, so uh, how are your sales? He said, they're up 65%. Wow. I don't doubt it. I mean, that's such a, such a smart change. Um, and that... that what you just said put a lot of things together for me. Like when people are not confident decision makers, don't give them every single option in the book. Give them a couple. Make and I do that in coaching. If they're real cautious, man, I seed them. I just sprinkle a seed here. Sprinkle yeah. a seed. I let the seed germinate. I give them another seed. I let it germinate and I give them another seed. Hmm. And then they slowly become more confident because they see themselves being able to replicate and duplicate this stuff because I'm growing their self-image at the same time. Mm -hmm. And they shift to being a little bit more confident, then I can start giving them more information. That's so good. I mean, one of the biggest mistakes, especially as teachers, as managers, as bosses, 
We give too much information. We overteach. Mm-hmm. Dub it down. Mm-hmm. It's okay to just drip information. It's probably one of the best forms of leading I've ever seen. Mm. It's like when you it's like when you go to a lake and you're sitting on the bench and you see the pigeons or the, the ducks or what have you, and you throw popcorn or you throw some seeds out there, right? You don't dump it all out there. Yeah. You just throw a couple out there. They'll eat them and they'll look at you and they'll walk a couple more steps closer. And you drop a couple more and they'll walk. Next thing you know, they're on your shoe or they're on your knee. Yeah. You just got to drip it in. Mm-hmm. Two things. It builds trust. Confidence, because it grows your self-image, builds trust, and allows them to commit to what they're doing. Right. They don't get overwhelmed mm-hmm. with the cautious decision-making. Yeah. Right? My wife is cautious. Mm. But she's very assertive, and she's high express. But she's a cautious decision-maker. Right. She does end up making confident decisions. But when we talk about things and I'm saying, hey, this is what I think I would recommend that we do, I don't give her a ton of options. Mm -hmm. I break it down and I narrow it down. She goes, oh, well, okay, what if we did this? I said, okay, let's do that. That works for me. Yeah. You don't lay out every option you give her. No, do you like that? Yeah. She goes, I like that. Okay, so what happens? She made a confident decision. Has she become a more confident decision maker? Absolutely. Mm. That's she so goes, good. I like the way you do this. I said, this is the way I coach. Yeah. <laughs> I live it. Right? The number one profile in America right now is the cautious innovator. That's where all these kids are. They're highly innovative. Mm-hmm. Right? But they're a little cautious in their decision making. You just kind of look at the world where we're at right now. Yeah. You know? And even more so where we're at right now in this time. Yeah. There are are so many people who <clears throat> I had a conversation with somebody last night, literally about this. And it was this person wanted to create a bunch of excellent content. And like, they have all these great ideas for value that they can provide. And so I made the mistake of just uh, a couple of weeks ago, just throwing out a bunch of ideas. Oh, you can do a podcast. You can do videos. You can do this. You can do articles. You can like, it's endless. Just do all right. of it. And it was almost like paralysis, like decision paralysis. And then I went down to just two. Like, oh, here is like the thing that you can create. And here's the second thing that you can create. What do you think about this? And boom, the light bulb went on. Yeah. So what you just said is, is totally true. That's valuable. Everyone listening, that's valuable not only in sports, that's in, in, in coaching. That's so valuable in life and relationships and in your business with, I mean, oh my gosh. With your kids. And that's huge. That's huge. Yeah, when you teach, you know, you've, you've got to drip it in. You've got, to, you've got to basically assume that they don't know. And you've got to assume that you're that person. Because, mm-hmm. man, people can go. I mean, I could go. I could go on and on and on and on and on and on. But, man, the first thing, you know, it's like, you know, you, you have... You have four stages of development. And the first stage is the learning stage. 
There's a lot of learning that has to take place. You got to learn the language. I mean, when I coach athletes, remote cat, uh, athletes all around the world, we have to we have to learn how to speak the same language. So I spend a lot of time, a lot of one-on-one with them. I give them a lot of tutorials. I give them information to read when we do our calls. And then over a period of time, they start speaking the language. Mm-hmm. Then they can start replicating and duplicating. Yeah. Then I can start teaching them other things. Mm-hmm. All right. Then when they can start replicating and duplicate these things, then I can start training them to compete. It's no right. different than training for sales, folks. You don't shove them in into the sales piece immediately. You, you, you teach them the language. You teach them the how-tos. You do some mock calls. Yeah. So you grow that self-image. Mm-hmm. And then you, that's training to learn. Then you train them to compete. And then as they grow, where they could start replicating and duplicating all these things, and they start competing in the environment, and they start having some winning performances and successes, then the next stage is the excelling. Mm-hmm. That's where you really start training them to have winning performances. Right? And then the final stage is the advance, advancing. That's where you advance it. You've had winning performances, personal best, and you set records. Right Now you want to advance this one more. Kind of like Sean Payton wants to do at the Saints. He wants to get another Super Bowl. Yeah. So does Drew Brees. Right? You win a gold medal, you want to advance it again. You win a World Series, you win a world title. Well, there's a lot of things that have to change. Training has to advance. Consequences are higher. Competition calendar changes. You got to hit the reset button. You've got to, I mean, I'm talking about a deep reset button. Because if you win a gold medal and you're going to go back again for another four years, people are going to start figuring out what you do and they're going to catch you. So you're going to have to innovate between the lines and you're going to have to reset everything. Yeah. Everything has to be reset at a higher level. Mm -hmm. So the advancing stage is really for the advance. But the learning stage, the competing stage, and the excelling stage, that's everything that I look at with everyone that I work with. That's so great. And, and let me ask you this, Sean. So when, say, it's an athlete or, or a salesperson, <clears throat> and they go out there and they have a winning performance, they've effectively read somebody, they've understood you know, if they're conventional or unconventional, they've done all the things that you've just talked about, right. they make the sale or they win the, they, they win the, the meet or the competition or whatever it is. What does somebody need to do right after that? Like the, the reload stage or the, the reflecting stage. What happens in that period after, once they get home, once it's over, once they get back to the office? What do they need to do to cement that into their self-image? Is it just as easy as like writing down, you know, just reflecting on it? Or like what are some things that you tell folks to do uh, to, you know, imprint that into their self-image? I think you can teach this. <laughs> You're getting pretty good at this, dude. <laughs> I've spent enough time with you, well, I guess. I think regardless of its, whether it's a winning performance or one that needs work. Because honestly, at the end of the day, there's really no difference. Actually, there is. I take that back. And here's the difference. We don't learn a lot when we're winning. Mm-hmm. We learn when we don't win. Yeah. So you're always reinforcing both. And the reinforcement is it's, you've got to always 
you know, determine, okay, if I have a winning performance, it's like, okay, what did I do? What did I learn? What solutions did I need to put in place? Mm. What I do great? What did I do great? Yeah. Well, if you have a winning performance and you're not writing down everything you did great, I'm talking like in full color, okay? Everything, the details. Yeah. Not, oh, I was great at this. Folks, an eight-year-old can write that down. Okay, I want it written in full detail as you're describing it in writing a book. Because those are most indelible imprints that grow your self-image. And what's your goal? Hmm. Your goal is always written in present tense. As you currently have the goal. Yeah. I am a 2021, you know, um, World champion. It's like me to exceed my goals on a regular basis. I am the best at sales. I always close sales. I often close sales. It's like me to cold call. I always cold call. I'm the best at cold calling. It's like me to have 20 calls a day. Mm-hmm. I am the best at having 20 calls a day. I always have 20 calls a day. The goal is written as you currently have it. So good. That's great. Because the only way that you can become somebody, you got to think about it, you got to talk about it, and you got to write about it. Mm-hmm. It's what you said last time. You have to become some, somebody that you're not. Yeah, before you can That's attain what we're it. we're doing. We're becoming people that we're not. That's right. Yeah. So the reinforcement piece, I mean, even after a day of struggling, oh, man, what did you learn? Well, you better learn a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you, you, and you have to draw on what you did well. It might be small, but what you did well, you want to do that again, and you want to do it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you got to know what your solutions are. And if you don't know what the solutions are, you need to find out what the solutions are. You need to go to your manager. You need to go to your boss. You need to go somewhere to get the help. Say, look, I need to understand what these solutions are. I need a solution for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you, then you reinforce all that. I mean, the reinforcement phase of a task is by far, it's, it's, the, it's the edge that the ultra-elite have over everyone else. Mm, Interesting. The anticipation phase, you know, the action phase with the reinforcement phase, the reinforcement piece. Is is the difference. It's the difference. I mean, we never, ever talk about what we don't want to have happen. We don't ever talk about what we don't want. We don't talk about what we don't like. Mm -hmm. Why? Because even those small imprints shrink the self-image. And everybody say, well, you know, you got to be able to talk about what you don't want. I'm like, okay, so for an example, my wife and I, right? I'll say, honey, let's go out to dinner on Friday. Where would you like to go eat? The first thing she asked, are we on a budget this week? Well, you know me. I'm always on a budget. 
That's just me. But I'm, I'm, I'm saying that playfully. Yeah. She goes, well, I don't want to go this way. I don't want to go here. I, don't, I, I didn't ask you where you didn't want to go. Right. I asked you where you wanted to go. I didn't ask you what you didn't like. I asked you where you wanted to go. Hmm. And that's such a common response. Right. That's what everybody says. So now when I ask her, honey, where do you want to go? Oh, I want to go here. Or do you think we might be able to go here? Hmm. Total different response with me. Yeah. Completely different. You ask an athlete their performance, how'd you do today? The first thing they go to is what they did wrong. How bad it was and how bad the outcome was. You can't tell me that grows the self-image. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. There's no possible way. And then you spend the next 30 minutes of them carrying on how bad it was, what they couldn't do, how bad the team was, how bad the referees were, how bad the weather was. Really? Mm -hmm. And keep going and going. And then finally, it's like, well, you know, I actually did this pretty good. They got to vomit. They got to get all the crap out of their (laughs) system and get all the negativity out. Yeah. Right? And then they don't realize that it just keeps shrinking the self-image. It's like having all this money in this piggy bank of this self-image. And every time there's a negative comment, it takes money out. Mm-hmm. And it keeps taking it out and taking it out because those are negative charges. Take it out, take it out, and now it shrinks. Mm-hmm. Now you got to turn around, you got to fill it back up. Yeah. But what if you did positive mm-hmm. charges and you grow that self-image? Because self-image makes you act like you. If you're talking about negative things all the time and you're talking about all the problems that you have and what you can't do, let me tell you, folks, you are going to become that. Your self-image is what's going to allow you to do that. Gosh, I don't know great. how to any other way to say it. So great. I think people need to hear that right now. I think they do. It's, you know, uh, it, you know this because you've been around me long enough is that I'm going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Because it's, it's important. Because I had somebody tell me what I needed to hear. Mm. And we can all reflect back to whether it was a loved one, a cousin, an uncle, a friend, a coach, or a teacher that got your goat and busted your butt and pushed you in a direction that you didn't want to go, and you always go back to there. Mm-hmm. My basketball coach in high school, Kenny Hewitt. Dude, I was scared of that guy. <laughs> but he was a Christian. He was always in church with us. I mean, God-fearing, dude. The man walked the walk, and he was one of the best coaches that I ever had. Mm. Ever had. Mm. Dude, he pushed me in a direction that I never thought about, and I never questioned it. Wow. So what's interesting, <clears throat> when you talk about questioning things, okay, we're in a society that people are very cautious, okay, and they question everything. Everything. I think it's become the norm to question things. So if you have kids, 
and you're listening to this, or if you're a young, young athlete or a young student and you're listening to this, I want to give you some very sound advice. Okay? The people that I learned from, I never questioned. I asked questions. Mm. And I got a completely different answer when I asked questions. When I questioned, I didn't get anything. And think about that. When people start getting questioned, they don't want to engage you. But when you respectively ask a question, now you're engaging. People love to be engaged. I got people, they, you know, they ask me questions all the time. They'll ask questions about EPS. They'll ask questions about the system. Well, it engages me. I don't mind being challenged. But if it's the first thing that comes out of their mouth that you're being questioned, I won't engage you. Yeah. I won't waste my time with you. Mm -hmm. But if you respect me, I'll respect you. And I think that there's a, there's a, a positive charged way in going about it. Right. And that's what I did with all my elders and all my coaches that were, you know, years ahead of me. And I'm like, man, that's really interesting. Where did you learn that? Yeah. So you're asking, you're asking the questions yeah. instead of questioning them. Wow, that's interesting. How did you go about, how did they go about explaining that to you? Where did they learn it from? As opposed to, well, I've never heard that before. I've never read that before. That's not on Google. Yeah. Well, that's not true because I can't find it on the internet. Really? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Food for thought. It's so good. Engaging the people that have, you want to get it, you want to engage them. It's just a good way of respecting and learning to ask the right questions mm. and not question. Do you correct that trait in students? Oh, all the time. What do you and tell them? I'll say, so if I hear you right, you're asking me a question of this, this, and this. And they're like, yeah. Okay, ask the question. Okay, now I'd be happy to engage you and answer the question. Yeah, that's good. It's the society that we live in. And it suppresses all the positive stuff that we want, you know, to have positive charges and positive outcomes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, you see it on, you see it everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it literally, we talk about this just at the yeah, company. You don't the see time. it in my training. Though. It's everywhere. No. Right. Or in your house. No. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen in anything I do. How, if, if somebody has been negative for their whole life mm -hmm. and they just sway towards being a pessimist and they just see things negatively, how do they get out of that? What is it going to take for that person to, to turn positive, to start to see the good things, to start to focus on the things that they did well? Is that possible for somebody who's lived a life in the negative space to jump over to the positive space? And if so, how do they do it? I think that's a great question, Evan. I think anything's possible. Um, 
I think you can overcome just about anything. It's the first thing is it starts, you know, if, if someone is, and we have these folks, we know these people that are extremely negative. They're very pessimistic and everything that comes out of their mouth is, is negative. What's not being done. It's, it's their habits and their attitudes. And I mean, I have athletes that are that kind of tilt that direction, not to the extreme, but when they start riding down, you'd be surprised. It's like, wow, they did this wrong. I did this wrong. I couldn't do this. I sucked at this. Oh, wait a second. Okay. Write down one thing that you did well. Mm -hmm. One. Okay. Out of that one thing, why were you good at it? Mm. So you get them thinking about it. You get them thinking about the steps, right? So you've got to do it in baby steps and seeds, right? right? Everybody wants to make this big shift on this needle, right? They want to, they're going to, everybody talks about it. Move the needle. Yeah. Or pivot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to pivot. Which I don't, you know, it's funny is I don't, I don't care for the term pivot. <laughs> I, I really it's don't. It's very overused these days. I think it's called responding. Yeah. When everybody else reacts, how do you respond? Mm -hmm. And I think we talked about this, is that, you know, when, when our country has a, a disaster, a national disaster, we don't send in first reactors. We send in first responders. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they've been trained for it. Yeah. So the more that you've been trained in your profession or your sport or whatever it is that you're doing, you're, you, you're going to learn to respond proportionately mm. to the situation. Mm -hmm. Or you're going to punt. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't say pivot, I say punt. Punt. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, we can't, we can't make, we, when we have somebody that is, that is that negative and tilted that much, it, it takes baby steps. Yeah. And it's got to be the same baby steps over and over again because it's habits and attitudes. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with, you know, athletes that I train, you know. It's same business people that I'm working with. Yeah. Their habits and attitudes. And so we have to slowly start shifting their habits and their attitudes. And once, once that compass or that I should say, yeah, the compass starts shifting. And once that compass starts pointing in the direction that it needs to go, mm -hmm. man, it's a lot easier to move the needle. Yeah, much easier. It is because the habits, I mean, when you think about it, it's like, okay, 95% of all the winning is done by the same 5% mm -hmm. all the time. It's the mm -hmm. same 5%. Um. 10% of the people in competition are the competitors. It's the 10%. The other 90% are just participants. Mm -hmm. They're clogging up the event. Yep. Okay? In that 10%, it's the 5% that are doing all the winning. Why? Why is it because they're doing all the winning? Because it's like them to keep winning. I'm going to tell you why. It's their attitude. Okay? If you have an attitude of, I, I won't do this, I can't do this, you have about a 
25% chance, 30% chance of success. That means you have a 70% failure rate. You have a 70% chance of not getting it done by just saying, I won't do this, I can't do this. Okay? By just saying, I think I can do this, by just saying, you know what, I think I can do this, you move into the 50% chance of success by just saying, I think I can do this, coach. 50% chance. Wow. Now you, now you take it from, I think I can do this, to I can do this. I can do this. You're operating at a 70% chance of success that I can do this. And then I can do this. I did it. Now it's the 80, 90%. By just saying I can do this, you're in the 70% and higher mm. of success. That's why the 5% are doing all the winning. Yeah. Because they believe they can do it. Even on their worst days, they still believe they can do it. Mm-hmm. Why? So here's the difference. Okay. That 5%. They trust that they can catch fire at any time at what they're doing. And they keep committing to what they're doing. They trust and commit. The other 95%, what do they do? When, they're not, when their performances aren't going the way they want, what do they do? They start overtrying. Mm-hmm. And the reason they overtry is because they don't trust. Yeah. And when you can't trust, you can't commit. So if you're having, you know, you're making all these calls on your sales and you've gone 0 for 20 today. Next day you're making 20 calls, you go 0 for 20 again. Are you going to start questioning what you do? I promise you the ones that are getting the selling done do not. Yeah. They might get through day four and all of a sudden, because they're trusting and committing, trusting and committing, and all of a sudden, they sell three of the 20. Yeah. And then the next day, they sell four of the 20. Mm-hmm. And that's the fact of people a, lot of people, a lot of people give up too early. They're almost there. They don't, but the, uh, many fail to just trust the process. Right. That it takes endurance and consistency. It takes high here. It takes high level, high level of effort consistently over time. Mm-hmm. High level of effort consistently over time, and you can achieve anything you want. Anything. But it's got to be high level consistent effort over and over and over again. Got to be relentless. Yeah. Relentless over and over and over again. That's so good. Relentless high level to that consistent pursuit. effort. Yeah. High, you know, high, high level consistent effort over and over again. And um, you, you can, you can accomplish anything you want. Hmm. That's so great. What has been the most shocking success story of somebody that you have taught from when they started with you? Versus like what they achieved. Do you have one of those? I'm sure you have, I mean, tons of those. Yeah. I mean, it's. But do you have one that sticks out? I do. And I, and I, I don't look so much as 
their overall outcome because, you know, at the end of the day, there hasn't been any athlete that I haven't been able to help. Okay? Help them achieve their goals. All right? But what I look at is I look at the becoming piece because that's all I look at. Because if I know if they're becoming, attainment's sitting there waiting. I've got to make sure that they're on track to becoming. And when they have, when they have personal best and they have winning performances, that's becoming. Mm-hmm. See, that's the biggest piece that everybody misses. So my, my radar is on that. The becoming piece and winning performances. So what does that look like? So I'll give you an example. On the golf piece, right? Got a young girl just south of me. In, in Delray Beach. She's 13 years old. Wow. Okay. All right. She's in our training. And one of the segments in the training that we work on are four footers. Okay. And they run all six steps of performing on the four footers on this particular task. I'm not looking for how many you make in a row. I'm just looking for you to run these six steps just like it's competition on these four footers. So it becomes like you to do this in competition, right? Stakes are high, a lot of stress involved, and they have to do this for an hour, Mm. 50 minutes. It's the first thing they start with, right? Wow. So she's like everyone else. When she first started out, she made 10 in a row. She made 15 in a row, and she made 20. And you're recording this, right, In, in your performance analysis, what you did, what you learned, what you did well, or what you did great. Right. She went from 15 to 20 to 25 to 30 to 50 to 100. Wow. 100 in a row. And, and then one, one day I get, I get a note and post it in her training space. Hey, coach, I had a personal best today. I made 330 in a row from five feet. See, I graduated her to five feet because that's how good she had gotten. Wow. 330 in a row. It took her three hours and 20 minutes. She made 330 in a row from five feet. That's incredible. So what did that do for her attainment? Right? So the next three events that she played in, she had a two putt or less on every single hole that she played for three consecutive events. Wow. Most people would say she didn't have a three putt. I don't talk about three putts. Yeah. She had a two putt or less. She made every five footer or less three consecutive rounds in a row. Wow. So she went from being an 83 shooter when I got her to shooting under par at least one of the two rounds in her last five events. Wow. That's unbelievable. I mean, and her putting is incredible. And was it was it the putting that really made the game changer? Well, when you're making your when you're making ninety five percent of your five footers, you're you're going to play well no matter what. You're going to have fewer putts. Yeah. And so when you think about it, how did she go from making fifty percent of her five footers? to making 95% of her five footers. Well, she had to train. Yeah. She had to do something that she's never done before. 
She had to train like it's her to do something that she's never done before. But it had framework and had to be defined, and she had to do it every single day. It's the first thing she starts with. I mean, she, she now trains five hours a day, six days a week. Wow. But when I got her, she was only training just a few hours because I had to drip this in. Yeah. Right? When we talk about dripping in the content. Mm-hmm. And now she's, she's running everything in EPS. I do this with all the athletes. It doesn't matter what the sport is. It's unbelievable. Wow. So I, you know, I spent some time class. in motocross, right? Okay. There's this kid, Matthew LeBlanc, who's 16 years old. He's from Louisiana. He's won a, he's won a lot of national titles. He's top three rider in the country. Okay. We were at the um, motocross Olympics. It's in Gainesville. It's called Minios. Okay. Mini, mini Olympics. Okay. Right? All the amateurs, right? There was probably 4,000 riders there. Wow. Okay, this was in November over Thanksgiving. Okay. But everything's outside. Mm-hmm. Everybody's in campers, fifth wheels, bumper pools, buses, RVs, motor coaches. And there's thousands of parents. These are all parents. And These the folks are all in. They're all in, dude. All chips in. Yep. You see it all the time on the poker games. I'm all in. All in. And so this kid, Matthew LeBlanc, is racing, and um, he's having a pretty good week. But what was interesting is, is that going into his last race, they raced four times a day, and there's a minimum of eight laps in every race, and they do this four times a day for five days. No, six, no. So they did it for seven days. Jeez. It's the most intense, most physical endurance sport that I've ever been around in my life. And these are kids. Wow. There's not a more punishing sport and a more dangerous sport. Mm-hmm. Okay. 18 months ago, this kid broke his back. Came back, bounced back, full recovery like you've never seen. Back at the top of the lap on the leaderboard. So going into Minios, he's going into the last race, which they call Motos, okay? I believe this was eight laps, okay? Before the last race, the previous Moto, earlier that day, he's in second place and he goes down, right? And he jacks up several ribs. He can't even hardly breathe. Finishes the race, finished like seventh, okay, which was amazing. So he takes a break before his last race, right? They get like a couple, maybe two hour, maybe three hour break. It was the last race of the day. Uh, um, Kitchen, who's one on on his team as well. These guys are on the uh, factory Yamaha uh, amateur team. Eli Kitchen, having a phenomenal week. In Levi, Levi, I'm sorry, Levi Kitchen, excuse me. It's Levi, Levi Kitchen. Kitchen. Okay. Levi's kind of gotten his goat that week, right? And he's, Levi's an exceptional rider. So they come, out of, they come out of the whole shot. Levi's got the whole shot. Matthew's right behind him. Now, mind you, he's got some jacked up ribs and he can't even hardly breathe. Mm. Okay? Dude, he's right behind him again. They get onto the back portion of the... Of the uh, the motocross, this is outdoor motocross. It's on the backside. 
Matthew goes down again, wrecks his bike. The entire field passes him. He's now in last place. Wow. He gets up, gets around. So he gets through the um, first lap, okay? Levi is about halfway around the track about to catch Matthew, okay? Matthew puts this thing in high gear. He catches the last rider. He passes him. He catches the next rider. There's 22 riders to be exact. Matthew was 23. So they got seven laps. On the final lap, Matthew finished second behind Levi Kitchen. Wow. So this is a track at Minio's. You can't do all this passing. It's, it's not possible. He's passing two, three, four guys at one time in turns, corners, and jumps, jumping past them, jumping over them. Wow. And everybody's talking about this was the most amazing performance that you've ever seen. And the kid had some broken ribs. He's doing it with broken ribs and he can't breathe. <laughs> and he can't breathe. Wow. So we finished. I mean, it was just, uh, that's a winning performance, mm -hmm. right? So we're having a conversation and I'm asking him, I said, I said, dude, I got to tell you. I said, that was insane what you just did. He's like, I appreciate that. I said, so tell me what you were thinking when you went down and all these riders are past you. You know, you can't, it's sometimes you just can't jump back in, right? You'll get, you'll get knocked out. You'll get, get killed, right? Yeah. I said, what were you thinking? He said, all, I was, all my focus was on was to get the last rider in my view. Mm. Once I got the last rider in my view, I knew I could pass him. Then once I got that was the next rider. I could pass him. And then all of a sudden, I had three of them in my view, and I passed all three of them. Every one of them that I had in my view, I passed them. He goes, I just ran out of space catching that damn kitchen guy because he's so damn good. Mm-hmm. Another lap, he probably could have caught him. And Levi went up to him, and he said, I got to tell you, he goes, that was incredible what you did today. The guy that won, Levi. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a great kid. He said, that was incredible. I mean, those are the things that I look wow. at, right? Yeah. And it's about having winning performances. Mm -hmm. And it's about having... So here, here's another piece. After the first lap he went through, he had the lowest lap time every time around the track. The lowest lap time, even lower than Levi Kitchen, because he's coming from behind. He's going faster and faster. Yeah. He had the fastest lap time on the next seven laps. Wow. Some of the lap times had never been that low all week. That's unbelievable. So this kid had <clears throat> hyper-focused on just the next step. Next step. And that gave him incredible endurance to just keep going. So he was like, I, I didn't even think about breathing. I didn't even think about the pain because it wasn't. Even, I didn't even know it was there because my focus was so much on I've got. I got to get the next guy in yeah. my vision. I yeah. get him in sight. I can pick it. him off. I get the next one in sight. I can pick him off. He's wow. 16 years old. That's unbelievable. It's this. This sport has motocross has probably been 
you know, for right now where I'm at in my life, it's been one of the most positive experiences mm. that I've ever had as a coach from teaching me. Mm. Okay. It's taught me so much what these athletes go through, what these parents go through. I mean, their level of commitment is at a level that you've never seen before. It's, mm. it's insane. I mean, these kids, their commitment, the way they train, it's, they train like Olympians. Yeah. Well, I've seen, I've watched some, some videos and documentaries of these kids and yeah. like, they, they're not in school. They're being homeschooled. Oh, most of them are. They're, I mean, it's like we said, it is all in. They're truly all chips on the table to do this. Wow. They're so resilient. Mm. And they, they don't understand, no, you can't do this. They're like, I mean, that doesn't, it's not even in the equation. Does that come from their parents? Where does that come from? It comes from the sport. Okay. The sport demands it of them. Yeah. If you're going to survive in that sport, you, the level of toughness, <laughs> just flat, brutal, physical toughness, mm. let alone the mental toughness, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, you know, it's, it's a pleasure to work with these kids. Well, it's a pleasure to work with any, any athlete, but it's a pleasure to work with these athletes, you know, that, man, they're, they're putting their bodies on the line every day. Every day they're putting their body on the line. Yeah. And the parents know. And the kids know. And I've seen some brutal wrecks. I bet. Brutal wrecks. At these events, I bet you see some of you that. You do. See a lot of that, I'm sure. You do. And what's crazy is they go down and all of a sudden they get up and they get back on the bike and they're riding again. You're like, no, you just didn't do that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's been an education for That's me. That's crazy. No, it is. So, so you know, I, I look at the, the personal best. I look at the way, they, I look at the way you should train. Because that's going to set the course of how you're going to compete. Mm. You know, our, our whole system is broken down into, you know, there's three things that your performance hinges on. There's three things. It's all driven by the self-image, okay? The way you think, the way you control your thoughts in a very stressful situation is going to determine your performance. Yeah. Okay. Also, the way you think, what you've done in your training either grows or shrinks your self-image. Mm -hmm. Okay? How you have trained in whatever it is, business, school, sport, how you have trained is going to have an indication of your performance. Mm -hmm. And how you train either grows or shrinks your self-image. Yeah. Okay? The third piece that you, we talked about quite a bit today is the reinforcement piece. Something that a lot of people don't talk about. How you reinforce in everything that you do either improves the probability of you doing it or not. And that either grows your self-image or it shrinks it. So after every task that you perform, you're reinforcing all day long. Reinforcing solutions all day long. Mm. All day long. Over and, and is over this written again. or is it just in your head or how should people it's a combination do this? of everything what you think about what you talk about what you write about okay. so if you're thinking about solutions all day long 
and you're talking about solutions and we're engaging, okay, here's the solutions that I'm working on. I'm doing this, this, and this. Yep, you are doing this. And I'm reinforcing again to them that they're doing. And then they're writing about it. Yeah. So they're, they're thinking about it. They're physically doing it. They're talking about it. And they're writing about it. The power of writing is insane. It's we insane. talked a little bit about that the last yeah. time. Just the power of actually writing it and not typing it. But writing it, writing, writing the, these goals, writing the reinforcement. Well, writing the reinforcement, what you did, what you learned, what solutions, what you did great. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, you look, you look at the most successful people, man. They're writing everything down. Mm-hmm. They're recording what they did that day. Yes. They're documenting. They're, they are. They're documenting it. And the great thing about documenting it is then once you document it, you get to park it. And then the next day, before you start your next day, you get to recap, oh, this is what I did yesterday. I get to pick up right where I left off. Right where I left off. Yeah. I don't get halfway into my, my training or my day and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I was doing this. I need to adjust this. So mm-hmm. what if you caught fire? You caught fire the day before. And you didn't write anything down. And you start the next day, and you get X amount of time into it, and you're like, oh, yeah, man, I was doing this. I had to make sure that I made this adjustment, put this solution in place. You've already wasted this amount of time in doing it a different way. You could have read exactly what you did. And pick up right where you left off on catching fire. That's how we run our training. Mm -hmm. That's how these young girls make 330 in a row from five feet. (laughs) Right. Because she imprinted exactly what she did the day before and she caught fire yeah that is so important because i and i've experienced this in my own life too and i've experienced this a, a, like a, back when i changed my diet years ago i i really learned what you just said which is i would go through a phase of feeling excellent <clears throat> and then i'd change a few things around and then a month later i things were a little bit off and when I was, I, I, I was writing everything down that I was changing, I was able to just go back and go, okay, well, what was I doing last month when I felt excellent? Oh, okay, I, I wasn't eating this, or I was adding this, or I was taking this supplement. I could just right. easily pick back up where I left off, like what you're talking about. And I think that's important for everyone listening. I mean, why not do that in every area of your life? Well, if you want continuity, I mean, if you want to go to the next level, yeah. to me, the next day is the next level. Mm. I mean, just because you might take two steps back doesn't mean that you're not going forward. Right. I mean, it's a big misconception. And just because you take two steps back doesn't mean you're not going forward. Mm-hmm. Do people ever tell you, Sean, that you're too calculated? Do they ever say that to you? Yeah, I've heard it. You say that to me too. I mean, <laughs> all I'm trying to do is improve probability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I look at it like, I'm a very calculated guy. I mean, everything I do has a, a process. Yeah. But I like that because I'm not good. Like, why am I just going to wing it? Yeah, and I've heard probably more measured. Mm. That's a compliment, though, I feel like, when somebody says measured. That's a good thing. Um, I mean, if I, if I want to be able to do something again, you better measure it. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to bake this cake. I'm going to go back to the cake again. It's measured. 
It's defined, it's measured, and timed. Yeah. You got to define your steps of performing, man. I think it's, that's, pro, that's one of the, that's the root. It's the root of performance. And then you work on growing your self-image, put out high-quality effort consistently over time, yeah. and you can change anything. Mm-hmm. You can change anything that you want. I mean, you know, I, I, do, I do investment real estate, and I have for a long time, Yeah, 25 years. And my best friend, Mark Filardi, taught me the business back in, you know, the mid-90s, right? He's a lifelong friend of mine. And he taught me the business of how to buy properties and fix them up and rent them out. Mm. And I love it. I I, I do. And uh, there's not a day that doesn't go by that I'm looking at listings Five or six times. What? Five or six times a day? A day. Wow. Because I've got the matrix built. I know the areas that I'm looking at. I know where the grocery stores in the areas are that I'm looking at. I know what schools are in these areas that I'm looking at. All these different pockets, you know, around. So being, you know, Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, North Palm Beach, Palm Beach Gardens, Juno Beach, Jupiter Beach, Tequesta. You know, all these areas. Mm. And in Florida. And I'm looking at them all the time. Wow. And um, it's been good to me. Mm-hmm. It's been good to me. Yeah. But let me tell you what. It's, I mean, my wife and I last night, we were up till almost midnight. We spent two hours looking at properties. I love that. It's so fun. It's so great. Just reinforcing, right? Yeah. And I get better at it. I get better at it every year. And, and just like my training. I mean, I'm on the phone and doing coaching calls every day with my athletes every day. It's Reinforcing, every day. it's getting better every day. Where is EPS going in 2021? You going you to write a book? Or you what's know, the well, I'm working on one. Are you? Yeah, I am. Okay, I'm good. working on a book. Good. And um, the ultimate goal would get it, get it done by the end of 2021. Okay. Uh, I cannot wait for that. It's funny. I was just in Oklahoma City over the holidays um, working with... Uh, one of, the, one of my managers that helps me run my business. Um, Chad has been with me for 15 years now. Mm. And he's a, he's, a, he's a rock star, mm. the brainchild. So we, we sat down for three days, 10 hours a day, got what we call the war room. And we say, okay, what are we going to do in 2021? What's the budget? What's it look like to get to this budget? Mm-hmm. And what areas of opportunities are there? And what are we going to do? And we laid the plan out from start to finish on everything that we have to do. Everything. Because wow. he's been with me really almost since, since day one. Yeah. Pretty, pretty darn close. Every right? stage for the very, most part. Very stage for the most part. And uh, I've got a lot of trust in him and we're good friends and, and uh, have been for a long time. And so I do. I sit down and plan. We planned it out for three days, 30 mm. hours. Wow. And it was nonstop. Mm. And we have a whole room like you guys. It's all whiteboard. Yeah. Started in one corner and worked away all the way around. And um, taking snapshots of everything and put it, mm-hmm. all right, this is what it is. All right. So, you know, we got a we got um, we got lofty goals. And um, we're just gonna do it one athlete at a time. Yeah. One business at a time, one salesperson at a time. Mm-hmm. 
It's, it's all you do it by, mm-hmm. you know? So it's pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. Well, I mean it when I say it. I mean, I, I think that you and your team are, are truly changing the world with, with <laughs> this group. I mean, seriously, Sean, I mean, you changed my world. And uh, oh. it's, it's amazing just giving, it's, it's so incredible when you give somebody a framework for their own mind of just how to put everything in. It changes everything for them. Changes everything. Yeah. So be able to being able to teach people this at a younger age is just it's it's unheard of. It's incredible. It's really really neat. I I concur. You know, I wish I'd have done this earlier. I wish I would have started investing in my mind earlier. Mm. You know, because I didn't like to read books. You know, and really not until I got out of college. And it's pretty late. You know, I've got these young athletes reading books right now and I give them titles and books to read. And, and uh, you know, and we have questions and calls around them. I ask them about it, right? So great. I love it. You know, um, but once, once I made that shift, once I shifted my habits and attitudes around investing in my mind, um, my world changed. Mm-hmm. It, it changed everything. Yeah. And now it's like, oh my gosh, I... I I can't do enough. I can't get enough. You know, it's like, you know, my, and my wheels are always spinning all the time, all the time. Next steps, next steps, next steps, next project. Yeah. Right. Um, Cause man, when you exercise that muscle up there, right. The damn thing gets bigger. Mm-hmm. And the bigger it gets, the more information you have to put in it. Yeah. Starts out like a teacup. <laughs> Right? <laughs> right. But you have to exercise the muscle up there and you keep exercising. It keeps expanding. So it allows you to have more capacity, more tolerance yep. in, in what you do. And uh, I enjoy reading. I love reading. And um, I wish I didn't have to sleep. I, I'm the same way. And it takes I wish, up a lot of time. I wish I didn't have to sleep and I wish I didn't have to eat. Yeah. I mean, I could get a lot more done. I know. I feel the same way. You know, but um, the good Lord um, requires us to get rest mm-hmm. and we have to nourish our body Yep. and we have to take care of it. It's true. You know, so that we can do it again the next day. We can day. keep performing. We can keep performing. Right? We, need, we, we have a whole segment we need to do about, about nutrition too. Yeah. I'm I've, sure we could go I, down all kinds of rabbit holes with that. I, I, I think we, we probably could. It's, you know, we, we, we both learn a lot. And yeah. I, I've learned a lot, and um, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. Where I came from growing up uh, as a Charlet cattle rancher, you know, <laughs> yeah. eating beef all the time to I don't eat beef at all. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, and in learning about your body is, you know, and in, in learning how your body functions and 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 what your body needs, mm. you know, is it's so important. Everyone's a little bit different, but, you know, because food doesn't have the minerals that it used to have. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And so, um, and there's important minerals that you've got to have in your body. Mm-hmm. you got, you got to have it, Right. Um, but we could, we could go on for, I, I love learning about that piece. I mean, I'm reading about it and all the time and, 
not so much reading from nutritionists, but reading about the body. Yeah. I mean, it's right there in front of you. Mm-hmm. If you just learn what the body needs, then you put it in it. Yeah. I mean, it's like a car. <laughs> a car either so runs true. on gas, it runs on diesel, it runs on electricity. I mean, you don't put diesel in an electric car, do you? Yeah. Well, I imagine somebody may have, but they may, may have had too, much, too many cocktails that, that right. night. You know? <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? It's like you don't, put, you don't put diesel in a gas car. You put the right fuel your body's your body's the same way same way i mean you get a you get a bad dose of fuel mm-hmm. and your car is going to act up yeah how can how can you expect your body to function on all cylinders if you're giving it the wrong fuel you'd never feed a, a an expensive racehorse garbage food and I think in our day and age, we've just sort of decided that we're going to circumnavigate how the human body works and fill it with things that are not meant to go inside of it and expect it to run. And the other thing, too, is, you know, I love the mental health portion of it. Everybody thinks that we're disconnected from the neck down and our thoughts and what's happening inside of our head is separate from what we're putting into our bodies. It's all the same. It's all connected. Uh, yes. <laughs> it is and your brain is the first thing to react mm-hmm. so you got to invest in your mind in, on different levels yeah. not only from an education standpoint but also from a fueling mm-hmm. standpoint well your brain consumes 30% of all the calories you consume and yes what a 7-8 pound organ yeah so, like, think about that. I mean, it's consuming such a large portion. I mean, there's 70% left for the rest of your body. 30% is going to just your brain. That's going to have an impact on your mood and your thoughts and your attitudes. Right. I mean, hydration and sleep are critical. Just those two pieces right there. I can't remember what the number is, but I know the number's high. It's a very high number of the population that's dehydrated. Mm. And... You know, water is critical, but there's also other stuff that has to be put in the water so that you stay hydrated. Because if you're dispensing and you drink a lot of water, you're going to get flushed. Mm -hmm. Now you flush all the minerals out of your body, you're screwed. Yeah. I know that Mm -hmm. because I've gone down. I've had to go to the hospital and get the IVs. Mm -hmm. And I know what that feels like. Yeah. And and. What happens is, is that you get, you get dehydrated and you don't even know you're dehydrated. Well, you can say, well, I'm not working out and we're dispensing all day long. Your body's alive. It's breathing, man. It's churning yeah. all the time. You're burning stuff all day long yeah. and you're burning water. Mm-hmm. It's evaporating. Yep. All day. All day. And all night. All night, man. Yeah. And that doesn't mean just drink Gatorade. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to comment. All right, Sean. Well, um, such a such a um, great episode once again. No, this is cool. I, I enjoy it. I hope you folks that are listening out there enjoy this as well. And, and feel free to reach out to us. You know, whether it's Evan or myself. You know, how, you, how does somebody find you? How do they reach out to? to yeah, Sean? it's it, probably the easiest way is you know when you post these right on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Direct messaging is probably the best and the easiest way. Okay, and. Um, 
you know, that's that's probably the easiest because I'm, I'm on there all the time and you are too. Right. Direct message me and uh, if you got questions or want to have a conversation, I love having discovery calls. Yeah. Discovery calls are fantastic because mm-hmm. you never know what you're going to discover. Right. And uh, so if you want to be up for a discovery call, man, reach out to me, direct message me. Dude, I'll make time for you. I love it. And on Instagram, it's Mindset Coach first yeah mindset coach mindset coach first on instagram okay perfect um well everybody go find sean reach out to him um like his content he's got some excellent content on his page as well give me a like and i'll love you there you go (laughs) and give him a follow and i'll love you even more yeah exactly and Mm. send me a comment because i'll definitely i'll hit the comments i love to hear i love to hear what you have to say that's great you know because sometimes i do get tired of talking yeah (laughs) (laughs) you got to listen sometime, right? You do, right? (laughs) Exactly. Well, Sean, thanks so much again. No, it's been great, Evan. Thank you very much. And I appreciate you having me down to the studio again. You got a great place here. Thank you. And uh, let's do it again. Thank you. Will do. All right, brother. All righty.